Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. Good morning. We're going to um, kind of kick off our, our teaching this morning by uh, taking our offering, actually. And so this, um, this is a great opportunity for us to give back what God's given us, worship uh, with our finances, and um, so much of you, what you give goes to so much more than you think. And um, I just wanted to thank you for being a part of it. And so um, and as, we, as we begin, we are in a series called No Plan B. And if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, what we've been up to is we fast forwarded uh, at the beginning of the year, we were in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7. And we were in that for a while. And then we hit Easter, and then we kind of fast-forwarded to the end of Jesus' ministry, the end of his um, time with the disciples, and it's right after the resurrection. And Jesus has gathered the disciples with him in kind of their favorite spot um, in Galilee, and he gives them what you and I, if you've been around church for any length of time, know is the Great Commission. He gives them this Great Commission, this this, this basically, he puts them on mission. And uh, what we've been kind of trying to do the last couple of weeks is to maybe help you and me unlearn some of the things that we've learned about the Great Commission. Um, the, some of the things that you and I have kind of thought have, have been normally part of it. And um, the reason why I say that is I, I think that um, over the years and over time, uh, things get emphasized that, um, that maybe weren't Jesus' intention to emphasize, and things maybe get minimized um, that Jesus didn't mean to minimize. And, and we kind of end up with this idea that the, the Great Commission was basically uh, you and me going out and converting people and leaving it at that. Maybe you and me going out and uh, helping people to believe something different in their life, in their head about who God is. And then they would pray a prayer and uh, we would, uh, God would hand them their ticket to heaven. And then it would all be, that was the, that was the deal. That was the game. And really what Jesus does here is something way bigger we, uh, week one, we, f we went back a little bit, and we went to a place in, in Scripture where Jesus actually, the first time Jesus ever mentions the word church. And we talked about the worship of Pan. We talked about the rock of the gods. And we talked about how Jesus tells his disciples, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Um, he does this amazing teaching with them in this part of the world that was absolutely scandalous. If you were a Jewish person, this place would be off limits. And Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he gives them this whole teaching about what he's going to do with them. Last week, Dan talked about baptism. And because in the, sermon, in the Great Commission, there's a part about baptizing people and I think sometimes we think that um, baptism is, is, you know, one of those hoops you jump through. Um, it's just one of those things you do um, in your life um, if you go to church. Um, some of you maybe have grown up, um, maybe going to a church where you were baptized as an infant. Or some of you kind of maybe think that um, it's just, you know, one of those things that, well, I'll get to it if it's, 
if it's important, you know, if I think it's important down the line, maybe I'll do it. Uh, baptism for the people in Jesus's day was a symbol, was a moment of entering into the community. It was, it was symbolizing death to your old self and new life. And what we do now is we continue to live that out in our lives. We continue to see what it looks like to live dead to the old Ryan or the old Dan or the old Brian or whoever you are and new life with Jesus. Now, today we're going to be in this section um, in the Great Commission that usually we stop before we get to this part, right? Usually if you go to a conference or you go to an evangelism workshop, um, it usually starts with this. Therefore, go and make, all, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hard stop. Usually that's where a lot of this teaching ends, and today, we're going to pick up this idea of, of, in verse 20, it says this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching people to obey. That's just kind of like a heavy kind of phrase. Uh, to be honest, we've kind of heard this a lot. We've heard this um, conversion idea is the goal. And, and remember, we, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, discipleship isn't something that Jesus made up. It's not something that Jesus is like, well, I'm going to come up with a program here that's going to make, uh, that's really going to stick. Discipleship was already happening in Jesus's day. And we talked about this before, that if you wanted to follow a rabbi, um, that you would follow them and you would, you would be with them, okay, you would follow them wherever they went, but then you would learn everything they did and you would learn how they talked and how they ate and how they said things and how they learned scripture and all those things. And then one day the goal was that you would, be, you would do what they did that you would actually do the work of a rabbi, that you would actually be like them in the world. And so for us, this idea that Jesus is continuing with the disciples is God's plan through Jesus is actually to leave the work with these 11 teenagers on the side of the Sea of Galilee and to continue Jesus' work in the world. That was the plan. That was plan A. And he gives them what this looks like. And so, you know, for us, we look at this sometimes and we think, well, um, yeah, the, the goal is to convert people to believe something different. That's partly it. I think we have to change people's minds and change people's stories about what they believe. But there's so much more to it. And, and when we get into it, um, the whole idea of all of this is transformation. That you and I live in such a way that our lives are transformed. And, and, and isn't that what we all want? I mean, isn't that what this world wants? I mean, I was in the bookstore the other day. I was actually in Kansas City, and I was at, at a bookstore. And um, in the bookstore, you know, the first thing, there this huge self-help section. And one of the titles was, um, The Universe Has Your Back. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's comforting. The universe has my back. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm just looking at, and you know, it's this, there's this something in us, deeply in us as a people, as a human being, that we really want to change. 
that there's this profound um, desire in us to change, to grow, to, to stretch, to become more. The, the definition of transformation in scripture, I mean, in, in, in Webster's goes like this. It's a profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism. As from the caterpillar to the pupa and from the pupa to the adult, the adult butterfly. And so most of us in here, we, we, uh, we're not there yet. We, we want transformation, but we, we know we're not there yet. In fact, we're probably stuck. I mean, somewhere in your life, you came to know Jesus, and, and that radically changed your life, yes. But then something else happened. You kind of kind of fell back into just life, and you're stuck. And maybe there's some, some things in your life that are keeping you stuck. Maybe there's some emotional pain in your life that's keeping you stuck from like a wounding when you were a kid or, or a family you know, of origin thing or a relationship or a breakup. Maybe you're stuck in an addiction of some kind. Maybe it's a substance thing. Maybe it's a porn thing. Maybe it's you know, an, an addiction to finances or, or, or needing that. Uh, maybe there's something you're stuck in. Maybe it's an, a dysfunctional pattern of how you do life or ways that you're you're trying to be human. Maybe it's in romance or, and maybe it's your finances or maybe it's in work. Maybe you're just dysfunctional there. And, 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 and whatever it is, most of us feel like there's something in our lives that is, is holding us back. And the reason why I say that is because you and I are all being formed spiritually, whether you believe it or not. Dallas Willard is one of my favorite writers. He wrote this, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Spiritual formation, he says, in the Christian tradition. And the reason why he says that is because the belief is, and my belief is, is that you and I are all being formed, we're, we're always being formed spiritually unintentionally or intentionally. And your life, um, you may not believe me, but uh, I'm going to try to make my case that you cannot be not being spiritually formed. I mean, you are being spiritually formed, whether it's actively or passively. Um, And and unintentionally being spiritually formed is, is, it goes like this. Some of it is the stories that, that we believe in our lives. Maybe you grew up with a certain story, a certain expectation about what life's supposed to be or who you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to act or what you're supposed to get out of life. Those are all stories, okay? And then there's uh, habits that we have in our lives. I mean, even the littlest habits in our lives are forming us. And then there's relationships in our lives, what we're related to, um, and, and then our environment as a whole. All those things contribute to how you are being formed spiritually. Now, in, intentional spiritual formation is actually counterforming you. It's countering any, all those, those subtle things in your life that are forming you. So when we do teaching from this position, when, we talk, when Jesus talks about teaching, teaching is countering the stories that are told, not only in our, in our lives, personally, in our heads, um, in our families, but also in our world, right? 
practice, okay, when we talk about practice around here, we're trying to counter the habits that you and I form naturally. The things that we tend to want to do um, and, and then countering those things with the, the practices of Jesus. And then, you know, relationships, you know, sacrificial community, what it looks like to be in community together, what it looks like to sacrifice for each other and the one another's in scripture. Those are all counter what relationships are in our world. And really the Holy Spirit is really what counters the spirit of God in us, counters those things in our environment that affect us. And so this is just a little sidebar because where we're going is something that I think is really important because today I want to talk about teaching and practice. Because this is exactly what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Teaching people to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't say teaching people to know all that I've commanded you. He doesn't say that. Teaching people to obey, teaching people to practice all that I have commanded you to practice. That's really what Jesus is saying here. And so in verse 20, that's what he says. And, 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 it's, and it's this idea that Jesus, he shows up and the first thing he says in his, in his ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is here. And, and, and this idea of repentance, and I know that's just sometimes like a harsh word in our culture, but this idea of repentance is this idea of changing your mind. Like changing the way you think about the world. One scholar put it like this. To change, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. This is the idea behind it, to reimagine your life, for me to reimagine my life from the ground up. It's like, that's what this is. That's what Jesus says to repent, to turn. This is reimagining your life to redream everything in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is here. And it's a profound way to think and live. And so part of the hard part here is, is was we changing the stories when we teach, when, when we talk about scripture, when we have these conversations here um, on Sundays and, and in other places, it's changing the stories in our life about how we see the world, about how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in light of what God wants us to do. And so Romans 12 is this classic verse. And Paul is always in, in Paul's writings, and Paul is a New Testament rabbi turned follower of Jesus, super smart guy, was trained in philosophy and trained in the teachings of, of, of Judaism. And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus. And almost all of his writings, if you were to open up all of his letters, he always talks about the mind. He always talks about how we think and what our thought life is all about. And he, actually, he's kind of obsessed with our thought life, Paul is. And he writes this in Romans 12. He says, therefore, I, hurt, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this is just dripping and rich with Jewish language. And then verse 2, it goes like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, 
okay? There's that word again. By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This idea that, that teaching gives us a different story. It's like renewing our mind. And it's not like something we do. It's a one-time thing. It's just like, okay, Friday at 3 o'clock, I'm going to renew my mind. I'm going to get that checked off the list. No, this is like something you and me are bombarded with stories, uh, 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 counter stories to the kingdom all the time. The ads we see, um, just the stories that come from our own lives, everything is just counter the, the kingdom of God. And, and for, so for Paul, the first step in, in all of this, in any transformation, is the renewal of your mind. And it's this ongoing, continuous process. 1 Corinthians 2, 16, I'll just read this. It says, he has, but he says, but we have the mind of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, he says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in Colossians 3, it's another Paul writing. He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so sometimes that we have this idea that, oh, Okay, we want someone to believe Jesus. We want someone to, to, uh, to um, you know, add Jesus to their life. And Jesus never approached it that way. For Jesus, it wasn't just adding another thing I believe into a whole list of other things I believe. For Jesus, it was a whole new way to think. A whole new way to see your life. Dallas Willard goes on to say this in this writing of his. He says this, The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing, okay, destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that fill the mind of Jesus himself. So spiritual formation in Christ moves towards a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. It just changes how we think. And so our thought lives, we have these destructive ideas. We get stuck in, in mental and emotional patterns that are toxic. And it's just natural stuff. I mean, we can get into brain science all day here. And Ben's going to be super pumped. And some of you guys will be super pumped too. But I, sometimes it's just so nerdy to read about brain science. It's so great. So this is called neuroplasticity. This idea, it's called... Hebb's axiom is this idea that behind it, and I'll just turn it all unnerdy for you. It's basically neurons that fire together, okay? Neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the more you think a certain way and the more you uh, practice a certain way, the more your brain's going to tend to go that way. Our brains learn and, 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 and begin to move in certain patterns out of habit, out of natural impulse. And so it's really important, yes, to read the Bible. It's super important to read books and come to church and hear teaching. It's, it, you know, listen to some good podcasts out there. Um, go to Bible studies. All that stuff's super important. Because it rewires our mind. It, it helps us to, to replace the stories in our heads that we think are true. And Jesus actually says, no, that's not quite true. But here's the thing. Most of us stop there. And that's the problem. See, we're really great at this Western way of learning. And the Western way of learning is go to class learn the material, take a test, pass or fail, 
Um, and, and then you've passed that section of learning and you're done. And so what we do is we're, we're good Western people. We go to church. We listen to sermons. We read books. We do Bible studies. We even do fill-in-the-blank stuff. And, and then we compare what we know with what other people know, and we debate them maybe. And, and then we, we love certain teachers because they make us inspired and, and all those things, right? Those are really good things because those are changing the stories in your head. But here's the thing. Teaching without practice is not the way of Jesus. We have to have practice. See, it's the first step, but it's not the last step. Remember, I talked about this idea of teaching counters the stories in our minds, but practice actually changes our habits. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, teach them to practice everything I have taught you to practice, what he's saying is, is this is how you change. This is how you transform. This is how you continue to live a life that's dead to yourself. Remember baptism last week and living this new recreated life, this new life in Christ. And so here's the thing. I'm just going to push us. I'm going to push us because this isn't natural for us. Okay. Consuming content will not change you. Information will not make transformation, okay? You cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. I cannot do that. Listen, I went to seminary. I'm still an idiot, all right? I'm still a selfish, um, knee-jerk reaction guy. I mean, I still struggle with this anger or this frustration or whatever this is in my life. I still have these things. Why? Because... I know it, but it hasn't changed me. Knowing it hasn't always changed me. See, here's the thing. Sundays are great. We gather. We try to inspire each other. But then Sunday afternoon, you're like, well, I'm going to do it. And then like Tuesday at lunch, you're like, forget it. Right? And we beat ourselves up. And then we, well, maybe I need to learn more. Maybe I need to do another Bible study. Maybe I need to read more scripture. See, knowing something is not the same as doing something, which is still not even close to the same as wanting to do something. So what Jesus was always about was not behavior modification. Jesus was about the heart. And so Jesus would teach, but then he would say, follow me and practice this and do this. And hear me, I... I want you to hear this really, really clear. What I'm not telling you is uh, work stuff like, hey, you got to do more. You got to do more. You got to earn it. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying there's a gap between what we know, what we do, and what we want to do. It's a huge gap. Okay? So, for instance... I'm out in Kansas City last week for about 36 hours or so. And Kansas City, what's Kansas City known for food-wise? Thank you. So what's Ryan want to do while he's in Kansas City? I want to eat all the barbecue I can get my hands on, right? So I show up there, you know, and I'm at a conference with our denomination, and um, they brought in some 
sandwiches. I'm like, this is Kansas City. So I found this real cool barbecue place like a block away. I grabbed a friend. We ran over there, a place called Joe's, Oklahoma Joe's. It's now just called Joe's because people in Kansas City were like butthurt about the fact that they called it Oklahoma Joe's, right? So, so they changed the name to Joe's, right? Amazing barbecue, right? So I eat barbecue at lunch. Well, then dinner comes, right? So you're thinking to yourself, well, what would I eat in Kansas City? Well, barbecue, right? So I found another place called Roscoe's, right? So hit Roscoe's with another, bu- another buddy of mine. And so, so two for two, <laughs> two for two, Kansas City barbecue. Here's what I know, though. I know in my head that that's not healthy, like to continue to consume salted meats all the time, like every meal, Right? So I'm saying to myself, no, it's paleo. It's okay. No, but, right? So, so I'm, I'm eating barbecue at every meal, right? I mean, the next morning I wake up, I'm just kind of, oh man, barbecue. Oh, I'm just like heavy. You know, I have to go to this thing and then I got to get to the airport. But on the way to the airport is Q39. It's another famous barbecue place. And I convinced a guy, I'm like, well, we should go. I'm probably just going to have a salad though. I tell myself. Because you know you get a salad at a barbecue place, right? So, no, I get hit Q39, hit barbecue again. I am in the airport, and I'm in pain. I'm in literal physical pain. And this is the first time my wife's heard about this, because she would have not felt sorry for me at all, right? Because the difference is this. Here's the difference. This is just an illustration. Ryan knows that eating barbecue all the time is not healthy, but Ryan still eats barbecue all the time, okay? Because I have a problem that's much deeper, right, in my my life than whether to eat barbecue or not, okay? It's not about behavior modification. It's something way bigger than that. And so the reason why I say that is because you cannot, there's this idea of practice that comes with teaching. Teaching's great. I mean, you can listen to all the teachers in the world, but until you start to practice, you're not going to experience transformation like Jesus said. You're not. I mean, remember Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to read it again to you because I think it's just such a powerful... I mean, think about if I ended a sermon like this. This is how Jesus entered... He finishes the Sermon on the Mount like this. He goes, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, right? The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. What's the foundation here? Puts them into practice, right? He says, therefore, if everyone who hears these words of mine and just remembers them is not what Jesus says, He says, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, and what are these words of Jesus? Everything he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about anxiety and loving your enemies and all these things that we talked about. And then listen to this in verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. And that's scary because that's me. I've heard a lot of sermons and teaching. And I got to be honest with you. It felt good to learn it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like, man, that's something I didn't know. Oh, yeah, I should do that, or so-and-so should do that. 
He says, whoever does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came up, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And then he just walks off the mountain. I mean, that was, that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it fell with a great crash. See you later. If you take all this in and put it into practice on a regular basis, what Jesus is saying, whatever comes your way in life, whatever diagnosis, whatever job loss, whatever political drama, whatever family you know, chaos, whatever comes your way, will survive it. Luke 8.21, Jesus talks about the kind of people in his life. He, he talks about this with, uh, uh, someone asked him a question about his brothers and his mother. And he says, my brother and my brother, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus says, those are the people in my life. Those are my family. In John 13, 7, it says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so there's something powerful about a community of people who are yearning to practice. I shared with you guys a quote of that uh, guy a couple weeks ago, Stanley Hauerwas, and he, he says this, Christians are not naturally born. Christians are intentionally made by an adventuresome church. We make each other followers of Jesus. We root each other on in different ways. There are people here that in certain aspects of following Jesus um, have blazed such a huge trail in their life and, 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 and maybe in the area of generosity, it may be in the area of forgiveness, maybe in the area of, of overcoming some sort of an addiction, it might be in what it looks like to serve people you know, and, and they've kind of gone further than that journey, and, and they would love to walk with you in that. That's what this is all about. And, and some of you are probably like, but Ryan, Christianity is not about what you do. And I would say, well, what Bible are you reading? It's kind of my question back. And, and last fall, we did a whole series in the book of Thessalonians, and one week we talked about this idea of grace and faith. And we talked about how it all comes whenever Paul writes grace and faith together. Paul is referring to a way that society was functioning, and it was parent-client, a patron-client, sorry, patron-client a relationship. And if you were a client, meaning you were of, of someone of low means, you would need a patron to do things for you, to help you get a job, to help you get a loan, to help you uh, settle something legally. And as a patron, you wanted to have as many clients as you could have because what clients would do is they would actually um, uh, drop anything to help you. They would uh, pledge kind of fidelity to you. And so this is just how the Roman world worked. And so whenever Paul talks about grace and faith, he talks about grace as something that only a patron could give, a client. Patrons would give clients grace, meaning they would help them out of a bind. They would help something legally. They would help something financially. And what the client would do, they would return the favor 
by giving faith. So when Paul says you are saved by faith, uh, you, are, you, are, you receive grace by faith, what that means is, is there's this relationship between God as our patron who gives us grace freely. And now our life is oriented around our fidelity, our faith to God. And so in James 1.22, this is kind of how this works itself out. It says, do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So teaching and practice, right? This idea of teaching and followed by practice. Practice is where the meat hits the street. Practice is where that all kind of comes together. Practice is where we begin to change the habits in our lives that we see things transformed. And there's kind of three groups of things we practice. And, and the first one is the lifestyle of Jesus. I mean, if you were to just look at the lifestyle of Jesus, what Jesus did, things like Sabbath and prayer and solitude and fasting and scripture and, and those things, if you just kind of looked what it was like to be with Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus, that would change your life. That alone would change your life. Then there's the teachings of Jesus. We talk about loving enemies and serving the poor and, and uh, non-anxious living and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus commands us to teach and to preach and to pray for people and to cast out demons and heal the sick. And These are all things that Jesus just didn't want us to know about, but to practice, to participate in. See, it's Turns out that's God's plan A. Plan B is us showing up and maybe, hey, hey, if there's someone who's charismatic enough or went to seminary, well, then they can do it. And we'll root them on by throwing stuff in the, in the, in, you know, in the offering. But I don't know. I'm just a guy. No. That's, Jesus says plan A is you and me as the people of God actually practicing. You and me actually living this way. And so here's the thing. I just want to just zone in really quickly on practice, and then we'll wrap this up. Practice is these things that, I mean, just getting back to brain science, okay? We hear things teaching-wise, and that kind of comes in, and we think about it, kind of the prefrontal cortex kind of life. That's where it hits us, you know, in the teaching. But practice actually hits us, like, in the limbic system. It's actually kind of where things, like, deeply in us yeah, that's where it changes us. Um, there's one of my, I picked up a book the other day. I love this book. Um, it's a guy named James A.K. Smith, and it's called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And J.A.K. Smith actually makes a case. He says this, the heart, okay, when we talk about the heart, the heart is the fulcrum of, the mo of your most fundamental longings, a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. That is your heart. So when we talk about these phrases, you know, back in the day when he says, have you asked Jesus into your heart? What, what does that mean? You know, it's like, <laughs> really, what does that mean? Well, this is what that means. 
if you invite Jesus to reorient your heart, to reorient the fulcrum of your most fundamental longings, the, the, the deepest subconscious orientation you have to the world, that's what following Jesus is. That's the deep, that's where it gets in real deep. The orientation of your life, the direction of your loves. See, to, hum, to be human is to love. The problem is, is not uh, th- that you and I don't love. It's actually that we love the wrong things. And we're continually battling with those things. Like, what are those things that we love? James A.K. Smith goes on, and this is a long quote. And I know I'm so barraging you with quotes, but people, other people say this better than me. So he says, you are what you love. Spiritual power of habit, discipleship, we, we might say is a way of, to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. He goes on. He says, so discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants, to to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and and craves a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like. And I think for some of us, we... uh, we have this heart in us that the hymn calls, it's a heart that's prone to wander, right? It's prone to the, the, the compass of your life is, is always like wobbling somewhere else. And it's about our loves and our longings and what we want. And so oftentimes we've read the Great Commission as this, some sort of a plea for a, a few people to drop what they're doing and go to another country and convert people. And really what this is saying is, we, or, or, or we think it's like asking people to add Jesus into their life and really not change much, but hey, you should add Jesus into your life because it's like a vanilla shot, right? In your latte, it's just, it's nice, and the plan of Jesus is you and me together practicing the way of Jesus and inviting people to a whole new way of living. And that's crazy stuff. I mean, that's not, hey, let's, let's grow this church as big as we can get it kind of stuff. That's like, this is crazy stuff. So what do we love? What is the engine driving you toward the vision of the good life? What is that in you? And, and how can you curate your heart in a way that changes the loves and the longings in your life in the right direction? See, practice is really hard. I mean, think about fasting. This, this very simple thing of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. It actually is hilarious because it, it's really not even a thing anymore in church world. It used to be in the early church. Do you know the early church together on Wednesdays and Fridays would fast together as a church, as a community? And it's, it's just a beautiful, it's a very powerful spiritual discipline. And, and if you've never done it before, I mean, I don't blame you. It's hard. It's, it's, it's one of those things like I wasn't fasting in Kansas City, right? So, I mean, it's, it's one of the most powerful spiritual, spiritual disciplines. And, it's, and it has little effect on what you know. 
It has little effect on, on, on learning something or consuming information. You know what it has an effect on? It has an effect on, it actually gets into you, not through your head, but through what Troy Frodeen calls your tummy. Right? It gets into you that way. Troy's like looking at me like, dude. Um, it, gets, it gets into you a whole different way. That's the power of habit. It's a power of practice. It's a power of, of doing what Jesus calls us to do. I mean, think about it. All the things that we, you know, that are, that, you know, when you shop, right? And sometimes it makes you want to shop more. When you eat barbecue, what does it make you want to do? Eat more barbecue, right? When, when, you, when you watch Netflix, what does it make you want to do? Binge watch more Netflix, right? Stranger Things, season two, October, right? Anybody? Okay, so, so you've got that going for you, okay? So those things in your life that want to make you, when you gossip, what does that make you want to do more of? Gossip. When you watch porn, it makes you want to do that more. When it, do you see where it gets sideways? The farther we get into our own, these are the loves in our lives, the, the things that we long for, and, and it actually changes our brain, the habits that we create in our lives. And when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, you know what he's saying? Is you seek God's kingdom, you begin to want to seek God's kingdom more, more and more. You'll be want to experience more of what God has. See, see it goes like this. You have a say in what you love. You actually have a say in what you love. And the things you do, do something to your heart. And so when Jesus says, teach them how to, how to teach them to obey all that I have taught you to obey, teach them to practice all that I've taught you to practice. See, somewhere along the line, the word church kind of got an overtaking. The word church kind of got into this mental idea of I go there on Sundays and then I, well, I liked it or I didn't like it or whatever. Or the music was loud or whatever. The sermon was kind of not, I didn't really understand it, you know, or it was great. It was amazing or whatever. We have, it was like we leave the movies, right? It's like, well, did you like it? Well, yeah, it was cool. It wasn't as good as the first one, but, you know. And so we have this kind of consumeristic mindset of church. But I think to Jesus, it really wasn't about that. There's a guy in San Francisco, his name's Mark, and he, he wrote a book and he's done some stuff. And one of the things that he actually brings into, he changes some language. And he, he has this thing he calls the Jesus Dojo. And the, the do, a dojo is actually a Japanese word, okay? It's a Japanese word for a place where you learn the way place where you learn the way. So I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if we changed the name of our church to Restoration Covenant Jesus Dojo? Because really, that's what church should be. That's like, that's what this should be. Like, okay, we're, we're changing the story in our head right now, right? We're talking about what, the way of Jesus and, and what that looks like. But here's the deal. How do we practice that? Like, so when you, when you want to learn karate... Do you watch a YouTube video? Right? No, that's a bad idea. That's like, you gotta, you gotta start waxing on and waxing off, right? You gotta start that whole process. You gotta start practice, you gotta start doing it. So and the, the idea of a dojo is you show up. 
and, and, and you practice and you, you suck at it for a while, right? Like you're not good at it, but you keep practicing, you keep working at it until it becomes something that is just who you are. That's what Jesus is getting to here. Jesus is not looking more for more likes on the Facebook page, right? He's, he's looking for people who want to live this apprenticed life and to create more apprentices. And so most of our churches are set up to give a teaching and then you decide whether you liked it or not, if it inspired you, and then you just go do life. Imagine if I taught a sermon on teaching to, a, a, a teaching to love your enemies, right? Imagine, imagine that happened. I don't know if it would, but it might. And you thought to yourself, wow, I, I know what it's like now to love my enemies. I know I should love my enemies. I know that, um, you know, Jesus teaches me to love my enemies, but um, it's going to take you a lot longer than 40 minutes to actually love your enemies, Right? And that's what this is all about. To, we learn to change the story about loving our enemies. And then we actually try to put that into practice. And Jesus' assumption is you're going to fail at that sometimes. But that you're going to keep doing it. And you're going to keep trying it. And next year, you're going you're to love enemies that were bigger enemies than the ones you loved this year. And next year, you're going to maybe give away a little bit more money than you gave away this year. And maybe next year after that, you're going to give maybe half of the, maybe you're going to take two of this. If you have two of something, you're going to give one of them away. And you're going to, you're going to learn to stop at the side of the road when you see a guy who's on the ground laying there. I heard a story this morning. And you're going to, and you're going to begin to do these things in your life out of habit because you follow Jesus, not because you know Jesus. Not because you know his teaching, but you actually practice them. And that's what we're trying to get at. See, here's the thing. At the beginning of all of this, the people of Israel, God said to the people of Israel, you are going to be a blessing. And through you, the people of this world are going to see what I am like. And they totally botched it. Totally screwed it up. Then Jesus comes. And he does this radical thing. And he breaks his life in two for us. He makes a way for us to become somebody who we can, we can actually follow him in his death and his resurrection. We can actually become new people. And now he has this community of people all over the world. Apprentices to Jesus. I'm not talking about churchgoers here. I'm talking about apprentices to Jesus. And through them, through this community, the world gets changed. We are trying to become more like that. That's our hope.